hope it is to you. So if you, hey, if you have your Bible, uh, find the book of Exodus chapter 25. I'm really sorry I forgot to put in the group me uh, what section we will be covering this morning so that for those of you who do read it ahead of time would have a chance to. Very sorry about that. Um, this morning we're picking back up where we left off. We, we were away from Exodus last week for a couple of reasons. One, uh, to, I wanted to look at that Acts 4 passage that we studied last week. If you weren't here for that, maybe it's up on the podcast. You could listen to it there. I, I, I went there to let the message of that chapter, Acts chapter 4, sort of admonish, uh, admonish us as we get closer to uh, fall semester uh, and the arrival of literally thousands of new students. Um, not And in our college ministry, not just new students to Auburn, but students to Southern Union and, and yeah, just be hundreds of new people here. I, another thing, I, we've been at the Oaks Retreat uh, this past weekend, and we'll be there all this week. I spoke on Friday night. We were at the ministry fair yesterday. We'll be at the ministry fair again Monday and again Wednesday and again Friday, and I'll speak again on Saturday. Um, but we, I mean, just yesterday alone, we probably got uh, contact information for like 150, 200 students. We're going three more times to do that. So, like, we, there's going to be hundreds of students to, make, to reach out to, to make contact with. Uh, we will really need all hands on deck to do that and to do that effectively. Just know that. Uh, we'll, be, we'll be letting you know that, details about that. But just we, need the, we needed the admonition from Acts 4 to just, um, uh, with that arrival of thousands of students, to be bold in our witness for Christ to be unafraid to bear witness to Christ. Um, I need that reminder probably more than just once a year like I did, but last week was a good time. But here, we're coming back to Exodus. Another reason that we were away from this study uh, last week, too, is because we're actually covering a fairly big section of, uh, of Exodus, at least in terms of this study, and I just didn't feel quite completely ready uh, to, to, in how best to approach it and teach it uh, yet last week, so I gave myself another week. Well, quite honestly, even this week, I kind of I kind of went back and forth and kind of struggled how best to present this, and I was trying to think why. And I think here's at least why I think in my head uh, it, it, it was it was kind of tough to get my head around about how best to present it to you in the time that we have. Um, as odd as it might sound, I had the same feeling in preparing this as I did preparing to teach a chapter in Revelation. Now, Exodus and Revelation are not the same thing. But I'll tell you why I, I kind of had the same feeling. If you, if you think back to, to the book of Revelation and, and all, the, all the language, because it's apocalyptic literature, it's a different kind of animal. Like it, every word, every sentence, everything it's presenting is just highly symbolic language. You can just read a verse and you can tell, I know that that's not literal because it's something that's got seven heads and 14 eyes and you know it's not literal. But that's like on every sentence. And then like, it's like, it's, it's symbolic of something. Every little detail is symbolic of something pointing to something else. And if you just go into it thinking, I need to tackle all of that, it's like walking up to the beach and saying, okay, I got to drink this ocean. And you're like, I don't even know. I, it's overwhelming. So in a similar way, 
Um, when I was when I was looking, at, we're in chapters 25 to 31, and it's all about the tabernacle. If you read this these chapters, it is so detailed, and 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 all these different elements, elements of the tabernacle, utensils to be used in the tabernacle, the tabernacle itself, all of these many, 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 many elements of the tabernacle. They were literal and real. Like they made them. They existed in history. They furnished the tabernacle that moved from place to place. They were used. They, these things were literal and real. They're not like uh, the, the symbol, purely symbolic things in Revelation, but they are like Revelation in, in that all of these details, there's no superfluous detail here. Like everything here, Although it was literal and real in history, it was at the same time prophetic about something else coming. It was like pointing beyond itself to to something that would ultimately be fulfilled in Christ and in his work and in his person. And so I had that feeling like it was hard enough to cover one chapter in Revelation with that many symbolic details pointing to a greater reality. I had a little bit harder time with six chapters uh, full of it, but but all that to say, I feel like in the time we have this morning, what I want to do and how I decided to tackle it is think about these chapters more from the vantage point of an overview, kind of like we did with Revelation, an overview uh, of, of the tabernacle and its significance, and not just looking at this text, yes, looking at this text, but looking at this text, and certainly not everything in this text, but looking at this text in the context of the whole scripture okay we're going to highlight some of the details in these chapters but there's not any way we could we could uh bring out every every significant detail of it of the tabernacle but hopefully we'll come away with a good understanding of the place of the tabernacle uh in the life of israel uh, at least beginning on that journey and the tabernacle and what its significance is in the place of scripture because this is one of the biggest themes in the whole bible so all right enough introduction um, chapters 25 to 31, I've asked you uh, to turn to chapter 25 because we can't read that whole thing. We wouldn't, that would be the entire lesson. Um, so let's just read a portion of chapter 25 just to give you a flavor of this section. I'm going to read verses 10 to 22 of chapter 25. They shall make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside. You shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on, one, on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark of the testimony uh, that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out 
their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces to one another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in the commandment for the people of Israel. That's the word of God, and it's like that for six chapters. And let's pray. Oh Lord, this, this, uh, what we just read, this whole uh, section of Exodus, every other passage that we will consider this morning, we confess. Is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word? And we ask that you would give us eyes to see the truth that you would have us to see. In these words, would you give us eyes to see it? Would you give us minds to understand it clearly? Would you give us hearts to embrace it and love it, see it as important? Would you give us wills to obey and heed whatever it calls us and admonishes us to do and to heed? Would you give us all ears to hear the voice of the Spirit in the text? Would you give, us, give me the help that I need to teach and to teach clearly? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, like I said, uh, there's, a good, there's a good bit to cover because we just read a small chunk of a larger passage. And part of what we're going to see this morning, we're gonna ta- we'll, we'll see it by taking note of some of the details of this chapter and, and the other chapters, just zooming in on the details. Part of it we're going to see um, by noting, okay, chapters 25 to 31, noting the flow of what is revealed in these chapters, why this is revealed before that, and why it's important that this comes after that, sort of, the flow of it. And then... And then also, what we're going to see, we're going to see all of, in all of this, we're going to be mindful that this passage of Scripture is situated in a whole canon of Scripture um, that is revealed by God and that is a unified revelation of himself and his work. So if you're taking notes, there are three things that I would like us to see. I'll tell you ahead of time and then we'll dive into it. First, we're going to consider some things in the first half of our passage and, and consider this, God's presence in the tabernacle. God's presence in the tabernacle. Um, maybe this, that, that is not surprising to you uh, based on what I've already told you about the book of Revelation. And this won't be the last time we think about God's presence. I mean, the, 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 the climactic end of the whole book of Revelation is the cloud of glory de- de- descending on the tabernacle and God's presence filling the tabernacle. So we'll talk, we'll talk about it again before the, before the series is over. But first is God's presence in the tabernacle. Next, we're actually going to turn to another passage in the Old Testament to think about this, the placement of the tabernacle. The placement of the tabernacle. I, I just, uh, I won't spend a lot of time on this point, but um, since we haven't, we're going to say plenty else about the tabernacle in the book of Exodus, I wanted to quickly turn to one other place and just briefly hit on the placement of the tabernacle in the camp of the people. And then finally, we'll come back to the, to the second half of our passage and, and think about the prophetic purpose, the prophetic purpose of the tabernacle. So three things, presence, placement, and prophetic purpose. All right? So let's dive in and think first about God's presence in the tabernacle as it's, as it's revealed here. So right off the bat, it, it, it should be noted that it's not really, it shouldn't be really surprising that this would be 
the, the prominent theme right off the bat here because I've, I've been saying since the very beginning of our study in this whole book that the book of Exodus is divided into two divisions, two main divisions. Now, different people draw that dividing line in different places. I place it right after chapter 15 in the Song of Moses. Why, is there, why are there two divisions? Because it appears that God has two different main providential aims. Like, what is he trying to do? What is he trying to reveal about himself? Or what kind of reality is he creating? And it seems to be a, 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 a shift somewhere along the way in the book of Exodus. And I've said since the beginning, the providential aim of God in the second half of the book of, of Exodus is... Uh, the, the establishment among his people of his manifest presence. He's brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand, brought them out of slavery, brought them in, into the, on their way to the promised land. They're no longer under the yoke of any other. But they are his people. He's giving them his law. And now he, he's creating a means by, way, by which his presence, his manifest presence could reside among his people. And, 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 and so that's the, that's the whole point of the whole second division of, Revel, of Revelation. I've already talking about it. But Exodus. And so we should fully expect then that that might be then the first, the foremost theme set forth in our passage today in the building of the tabernacle. And sure enough, right off the bat in chapter 25, the first instructions in chapter 25 are for the construction of the sanctuary of the tabernacle. And if you're looking at chapter 25, what is God's own stated purpose uh, for this sanctuary uh, in the tabernacle? And, in, and in, uh, he tells them how to take contributions for the building of it and the materials with which to build it. But look at what he says in verse 8, which is right before um, the passage we read. He says, and let them build me a sanctuary. Why? that I may dwell in their midst. And we read the passage about the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. Uh, you know, th this, is, this is where God would meet with his people. I mean, he says, even after the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant, he says in verse 22, there I will meet with you. Right? And then right after that, you see, we're not going to read it, but you see the table for bread. Uh, right after that, beginning in verse 23, all the way through verse 30, you got the table for bread, which would be where the, the bread of the bread of what? The bread of the presence would be. And by the way, what, what's the point of that bread being on a, on a table? Like, you know, in, in other religions um, that have hundreds and thousands of idols, uh, statues of, of, of the idols that they worship very often, they will bring food lay it at the feet of that idol the food the idol never eats the food and the food just sits there and rots you know they clean it off they'll bring, later on they'll bring more food they're like bringing food to, to, to supply the idol that's not the way it works with God that, that, that bread is not there for God to eat that bread is there on the bread, on the bread of the presence to symbolize the provision for us that his presence is I mean we're just coming off chapters talking about how in that wilderness wandering God provided manna God provided the bread for them to eat day after day after day and now as he is meeting with them 
in that sanctuary, in, on that mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant with this table for bread, he's reminding that he is our daily bread. His presence is our daily bread. And that would be, ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus Christ who stands up in the temple and says, I am the bread of life. Right? This is an incredible mercy of God. This, this emphasis on the presence of God in this passage, in this place, in Exodus, is an incredible mercy of God. In light of the previous section to this one, in chapters 19 through 24. What was chapters 19 through 24? That was God revealing his law to his people. And think about how he made his presence known to them there. He made it in the giving of the law, he made his presence known to them in thunder and fire and lightning and do not come close. If you touch, you will die. And don't even try to look. Right? Quit, don't try to be sneaky about it. Right? Warning people, don't come close. And so I suppose it could be asked, when you come to chapter 25, verse 8, and God states his intention for his presence to dwell among his people and they not die, are the standards changing? I mean, what happened? What happened between the thunder and lightning and the don't come close to now I'm going to dwell among you? How was God up on the mountain telling the people not to come near, and now he's going to be dwelling in the midst of their tabernacle? Well, lest you think that God's holiness is weakened here, notice how he says in, in uh, verse 8 that his, pre his, his intention is that his presence may dwell in their midst. But notice what he says in the very next verse. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Exactly as I show you. This is why, by the way, these chapters are, are just, you've you got to slog through them to read them. This is why, why it sometimes it's hard to, 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 to learn how to, how to teach and present because, because every aspect is then significant. If, if God says, don't deviate, one iota from what I tell you how to make this thing then you might need to pay attention to every iota of how to make this thing right and and and, and he says exactly as I show you they did they did not have the freedom to build the tabernacle as they decided they did not they certainly didn't have the freedom to model it after the temples and the shrines of the nations around them or what they saw in Egypt they didn't have that freedom. They were to do it precisely as the Lord himself prescribed. And what is this? This is nothing more than the lived out in history daily expression, or one daily expression, of the second commandment. He had just revealed the Ten Commandments to them. This is the second commandment played out in real life. Because, you know, the, the first commandment says, You shall have no other gods before me. And the second is, you shall not make any graven images. It's not like the first is, no other gods. And the second is, no really. No other gods. That's not the way it flows. No, the first commandment establishes that God alone is Lord over heaven and earth. And the second commandment about no graven images says, this is how you shall worship me. Commandment one is, I am to be worshipped. Commandment two is, this is how. 
He says how we come to him. And that's what's going on here. Build me a sanctuary so I can dwell among you, and, but you better build it exactly as I show you. And that is where we see the holiness of God that we saw in the giving of the law. It has not gone anywhere. It has not weakened. And to this day, we still come to him in the way that he has made for us. We don't come to him however we want. We don't come to him. We, no one comes to me, me apart from through the Son, right, by the Spirit. And he, and he tells us how we are to gather when we gather as the church. None of that has changed. But notice something we see later in chapter 25. Look down in the instructions about the golden lampstand. Um, notice some of the descriptions. This is in chapter 25, beginning in verse 31, through the end of the chapter. Um, notice some of the descriptions of how this lampstand was to be built. Verse 32 it says this lampstand was to have six branches. Verse 33 says uh, it's, it's to have three cups made like almond blossoms, each with the calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, with each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lamp, lampstand. Verse 34, on the, on the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and, and it keeps going like that. Like, this, this lampstand was to look like a tree. This was to look like a tree in the sanctuary of God. I mean, like, this is a clearly an allusion back to the Garden of Eden. Like, this lampstand in the garden, this is perhaps an allusion back to the tree of life that was in the garden. Right? And, and this, this is a pattern, by the way, when the tabernacle graduates to the temple in the Old Testament, this is a, under Solomon, this is a pattern that didn't go away. This is a pattern that was continued. You don't have time to, to turn to this, but just listen to what I say. Like when you move to the temple in 1 Kings chapter 6, this is some of the things we read about that temple. 1 Kings 6.18, the cedar within the house was carved in the form of of gourds and open flowers. 1 Kings 6, 29. And the walls of the house he carved engraved figures of cherubim. Why cherubim? They were put at the entrance of the garden after the fall. Cherubim and palm trees and flowers in the inner and outer rooms. Verse 32, he covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers. Verse 35, on the doors he called cherubim and palm trees and flowers. It was like a garden. The, temple, the tabernacle and temple was like a garden. The inner sanctuary of the, t the tabernacle and later the temple were designed like the Garden of Eden, right? With the tree of life at the center where God, the presence of God dwelt. But as the passage in Exodus here continues, it is a stark reminder that God never left Eden. We did. Because of our sin, we were separated from him, right? And that is the picture in the design of the tabernacle with the inner sanctuary like the Garden of Eden where God's manifest presence would reside with them on the mercy seat between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. And chapter 26 brings us back to a harsh truth. Look over in chapter 
and I've already alluded to it in what I said about the cherubim. Look in chapter 26, verses 31 through 33. Exodus 26, 31 to 33. And you shall make a veil, a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns of fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim. Again, why? Because what did cherubim do in the Garden of Eden in chapter 3? They guarded the way that we could not enter again. Uh, skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold, on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. What will the veil do? The veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. It's reminders that the we are still east of Eden. We, 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 we still cannot in ourselves go into the most holy place. In ourselves, we are still sinners separated from the holy God. And that is why around halfway through this long section, about halfway through 25 to 31, about halfway through, the direction of it changes. What do I mean by that? So from chapters 25 all the way up to the end of chapter 27. So 25, 26, and 27, it is full of descriptions uh, uh, of, of the symbolic ways in which God was coming to dwell among them. Here's, here's my sanctuary, the ark, the mercy seat, the lampstand. I'm coming to you, and here's how that's going to happen. But then beginning in, in chapter 28, 28 through 31, the direction changes now to how do sinful people come to him? Once he has come to us, how are we to come to him? Right? Um, with, how do, you, how do you see that? Well, just look at like how it, 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 it makes that point like in beginning in chapter 28. We don't have time to look at all of it, but like, Notice how 28 begins. Now we're talking about priests. We're talking about people. But how are they to come? They have certain garments they're to wear. Chapter 29, they're to be consecrated in a certain way. I mean, and, it, and very specifically how they were to be consecrated. There's more to say about this, and we'll say it uh, in, in the last point I'm going to make this morning about the prophetic purpose. But at this point, we have seen this emphasis in the first half of God is going to come and, and reside among his people. But for him to do that, you must do it exactly as I say and then come to me exactly as I say. Okay? The presence of the tabernacle. But now let's think of a quick word about the placement of the tabernacle. And I won't spend, I won't spend uh, much time at all to see this. But to see this, we need to turn to a different passage of scripture. I, again, I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but I think there's symbolic significance to this point, um, and I won't have a chance to make it while we're in Exodus. So hold your place here and flip over a couple of books to the book of Numbers chapter 2. Numbers chapter 2. And this will be quick. Don't let 
the name Numbers. Numbers. Like, scare you away from reading the book. It's a page turner. Anyway, um, so once the, once the tabernacle was complete, and knowing that the, the people were going to be moving from place to place in the, in the wilderness on their way to the promised land, um, they would have to move the tabernacle along with them. And they would have to set up camp over and over again with the tabernacle. And, of course, God gave them, as you would expect, very, very, very specific instructions about how to set up that camp every time they set up camp. And, and we find in those, those instructions, well, that's what we find in chapter 2. Let's look with me for just a second. We're not going to read all this because, A, we don't have time, and, B, that would be really tedious. Um, but just look at a few verses here. There was a certain order in which they were to set up camp. And in verse 3, look there, he, said, he, he itemizes which tribes were to set up on the east side of the camp. And then if you look down in verse 10... He says which tribes were to set up their tents on the south side of the camp. Looking down at verse 8, 18, excuse me. He says which tribes were to set up on the west side of the camp. And then all the way down in verse 25, he says, you guessed it, which tribes were to set up on the north side. Just going in a circle here. There was a big circle, north, south, east, and west, but there was a center to it. There was a center. Look at verse 17. Then the tent of tent of meeting, or the tabernacle, and isn't that interesting that the other name for the tabernacle is called the tent of meeting? The tent of meeting shall set out with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camps. The tabernacle was to be in the very center of their camp, everywhere they went. I mean, their houses were all around it looking at it. You know, think about that. No matter where you lived, every day when you walked out of your tent, what do you see? You see the tabernacle. You're not facing outward. You're facing toward the tabernacle. And clearly this was, this was symbolic of a larger point. The tabernacle was not uh, simply to be located at the center of the camp, but at the center of their consciousness in life. Every day. It was the most important reality of their lives every day. Their lives revolved around God's presence among them in that tabernacle. And I would simply submit, and this is the quick point I want to make about this, nothing about that reality has changed today in terms of the way it ought to be. The, we, we come to God... God has come to us in Jesus Christ. We come to God through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and His perfect work on our behalf. That's how we come to Him. And the Holy Spirit has already done His work and He's residing in our hearts and our lives uh, indwelling us. But, but the Scripture very sa clearly says we can quench the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. You know, uh, so... In, the, in that sense, the presence of God in our lives, even in terms of walking in the Spirit and knowing it, we, we, we ought to care for that. We, it ought to be the center of our consciousness like the tabernacle was for them. Actively aware of the Holy Spirit's presence in us through, through Jesus Christ and enjoying His presence uh, in our lives through, through, throughout the day. 
if they under the law had the presence of God among them constantly before them throughout their days, how much more should we under His grace do the same? Which is a good segue to our last point. And for that, we can go back to Exodus. And I want us to think about the prophetic purpose of the tabernacle. And like I said, um, most of what I'll point out here is found in the latter part of our passage this morning. So from chapters 28 onward. And I just want to highlight, I mean, there's a lot of prophetic purpose in these, in these and a lot. There's a lot here. I, I just want to bring to the fore three, okay? Three prophetic aspects found in these chapters um, that I want to make clear. Certainly there are others, but I think these are clearer than most. Um, and we do need to make use of scriptures outside this section to see it. Um, this is, again, a reminder. Any, any passage we read, when you're just doing your Bible reading at home, any passage we read, don't forget that it's a whole book. Don't forget that, that whatever, wherever it is you're reading, if you're in the Old Testament, it's going to find New Testament fulfillment. If you're in the New Testament, it has Old Testament background, right? Just be mindful uh, that, that God's given us a whole book, and it's a good one. The first prophetic aspect that I want us to see here are, are the two chapters of laws regarding the priests in chapters 28 and 29. In chapter 29, there is a chapter... Uh, on the consecration of the priests. And, uh, and there are very detailed laws detailing what was required in chapter 29 to consecrate those priests. But in, the, in this passage for us today, I want us not to forget, you have this, you have this, um, chapter on consecration in chapter 29 after what you've been told in chapter 28 obviously and and looking at chapter 28 chapter 28 verse 1 told us who some of those priests were who were to be consecrated look at chapter 28 verse 1 then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests Aaron and Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu Eliezer and Ithamar. Now, two of those sons that, that are in that verse might sound familiar to you. Um, I, I'm referring to Nadab and Abihu because they feature prominently in another story, a, a couple of, uh, well, in the next book of the Bible, in Leviticus, chapter 10. If you want to just hold your place here and turn over one book uh, to, to Leviticus, chapter 10. Um, Look at what we read in verses just 1 to 3 of Leviticus 10. And, and, and this is not all we know about Nadab and Abihu. They were, they were not good dudes. But they say in verses 1 to 3, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized some versions, older versions, that's strange, fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Again, second commandment, build the sanctuary exactly as I tell you. Like, you don't just go and do that. 
which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said among those who are near me. I will be sanctified, and before all people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Clearly, Nadab and Abihu, consecrated as they were in chapter 29 of Exodus, you can go back to Exodus 29 or whatever. Clearly, they weren't the priests that, that made the people right before God or brought the people adequately to God. They, they Still being sinners themselves, even after consecration. And the, from this point on, the thread of the Old Testament still keeps leading you to this point that we're looking for a better priest. We're looking for a priest who's not a sinner. We're looking for a priest who can fully and finally bring us to God, and that is clearly Jesus. Just a couple of other uh, examples of, of what was required of priests in the Old Testament. You can just jot these references down. Numbers chapter 4, verse 3, tells us that in addition to these garments and in addition to these consecration deals in Exodus 28 and 29, Numbers chapter 4, verse 3, said that those who, someone who was to serve as a priest had to be at least 30 years old. They couldn't be a priest at 28 or 29. It had to be 30 Chapters after that, Numbers chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, said that a priest had to go through, in addition to garments and stuff, they had to go through ceremonial washing before they could serve as a priest. And hence, I think, when you come to the New Testament, this is one of the reasons why Jesus came to John to be baptized when he was 30, Right? He is coming to be that priest once and for all who would bring his people to God. That's one prophetic aspect. But a second prophetic aspect that we see in our passage, we see in Exodus chapter 31. This is the last chapter of our passage. Exodus 31. And there we are told of two craftsmen in particular, Oholiab, what a name, and Bezalel. Oholiab and Bezalel, they were instrumental in building many of the things in the tabernacle. But look with me at chapter 31, verses 1 through 6 carefully. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him, Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all men ability, by extension how? By filling them with the Spirit, that you may make all that I have commanded you. What's the big deal here? Well, it's clear in exactly how these, word, these verses are worded that, yes, these two craftsmen are, are highlighted for the skill that they had, 
But why did they have that still skill? Because, it, because God had filled them with His Holy Spirit to have that skill. In other words, these men, as talented as they were, were, were simply uh, the Holy Spirit's instruments for building the place of God's dwelling among His people. Bezalel and Oholiab were the hands, the physical hands, but through them the Holy Spirit was building this tabernacle. That's amazing. But when you think, now think in whole Bible, the tabernacle and even the temple after it, these were temporary places of God's dwelling. Right? And you, 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 might, you might think that... Um, you know, the tabernacle is the temporary thing until the temple came. No, they were both destroyed. Neither the tabernacle nor the temple were ever to be the permanent place of God's dwelling. They were always pointing forward to a more permanent place of God's dwelling, to another temple coming. According to the pattern, though, established here, a temple that the Holy Spirit would build. And we see that come to fruition and fulfillment in the New Testament, most clearly in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, if it were translated into Southern English, it would say, do you not know that y'all are the temple of God? Y'all are the temple of God. Um, and that the Spirit dwells in y'all. And in 1 Corinthians 12, after it itemizes the spiritual gifts that he gives to the church, he summarizes in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, all these gifts that operate in the church are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills in other words he's laying the building blocks all right so the prophetic pattern set in the building of the tabernacle here is the spirit building through craftsmen this is the reality that, that is also seen in the church as the temple of god built individually by the holy spirit as he wills but the final the final prophetic purpose we see in this chapter, and then we'll bring it to a close, is also found in, in chapter 31 of Exodus. It's the very end of our passage. The, the, last, the last section of our, after, all, after six chapters of tediousness, six chapters of, I, I, I tried to like look up how many you shalls are in, I, I gave up. It's a lot. It's, it's hundreds, you shalls. And after all of that, you get to the end of chapter 31 and beginning in verse 12, and, and it just happens to be on the Sabbath. The Sabbath. The Lord gives instructions here about observing the Sabbath. Um, yeah, and I, it wasn't too, too long ago, I think in this study, that I, 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 I took you on the biblical journey of how the Sabbath moves from shadow to substance like the um from here to like psalm 95 to hebrews chapter 4 you know and it, and it pointed forward to a place of perfect rest and perfect peace with god and it wasn't under joshua that they entered the prime that wasn't the rest psalm 95 says no that wasn't it we're looking for something else jesus comes and says come to me all who are weary and heavy laden i'll give you rest and hebrews 4 says yeah that's it this is a rich section of the book. It may not feel like it when you first read it. It may take you a while to read it, but it's rich. Uh, 
and, and, and it's, you know, it, 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 like I said, it's, it's, it's deceptively so. It can feel dry at times. But this is a good reminder of what, what God tells us in 2 Timothy. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be competent and equipped for every good work. This passage is a good example um, of that. It, it has taught us, and it's hopefully made us aware and confident, competent, not only in the Scriptures, but also in the Lord's sovereign work for our salvation. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. 2 Timothy or as they say in England, to Timothy. Donald Trump says that too. Um, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. He has a British mother, by the way. That might be why he says it. But anyway, that's going to be on the podcast. Uh, yeah. I hate that. Anyway, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for um, your good word to us. Thank you for um, even in the, the tedious the tedious things uh, of Scripture. There are so many. There's rich, rich promises of your presence. Strong admonition of the placement uh, that your presence ought to have in in our lives and how, how everything in the Old Testament has this prophetic purpose built into it and, and, uh, and not not a dot, not an iota went unfulfilled. Jesus Christ came and, and, and uh, brought it all to pass. We th- we're thankful for that, and we, we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.